Oh, baby, baby. Good evening, it is October 2nd, 2020. This is your boy, the Notorious Essay, a.k.a. Steve Anderson, a.k.a. I don't know what to say anymore. So today, I was hoping to talk about the Electoral College and to give people a rough understanding of what it is and why it's important, but um, for today, I think it's important for historical purposes to document that the President of the United States, Donald Trump, has tested positive for the coronavirus, COVID-19, along with the First Lady of the United States. And as of this recording, he is off to Walter Reed Medical Center to be examined. And from what I've read, heard on the news is that he's also been given an experimental um, either cocktail of drugs or some sort of antibody, like blood or something like that, because clearly... As much as we like to believe that this is a reality show that we're all stuck in, this is still a serious moment for America. The President of the United States has a contagious virus that, and you can say whatever you want about him being irresponsible about it in terms of his public statements and in terms of his private actions and in terms of the people around him. All of that is true and all of that is fair criticism. But now that the virus is inside of him and with his particular age and health conditions, it could be serious. We have to understand that the president is, in fact, a mere mortal like the rest of us. And for all of our dislikes of him and his policies, nobody wants to have the coronavirus and it shouldn't be wished upon anybody for political gain. And... You know, there are plenty of people who are hypocritical about this and people who would love to point out the faults of others, but just know that there's people here, that they matter, and that you need to stay safe and protect yourself from the virus until we can find a vaccine. Really, the best that we can do is sort of just live our lives in the safest way possible. So. This goes out to POTUS and FLOTUS. I know we have agreed on everything, but nobody wants you to be sick, and we hope for a speedy recovery, because being sick is no fun, and when the constitutional order is in question, it's better for it to not have to go down that route. So, Mr. President, Mrs. First Lady, hope you're both doing better. While that is happening, we should also note that the presidential election is just over 30 days away, about a month and a day away from today. And as you continue to watch news coverage and as it gets closer to the day, you're going to start hearing a lot about that wonderful American invention that people love to hate, the United States Electoral College. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, I can go ahead and give you the quick 
Wikipedia definition of it, and then we can go into a little bit more of why it's so unique and how, when you put it in the proper context, people like to hate on this system, particularly because of the whole popular vote doesn't always pick the president type of deal. But hopefully, as we go on later throughout this podcast, I hope that you'll get a sense of why it is the way it is. And if you know where it's coming from, you might be able to understand better why we have it and how if you do want to change it, there is a process for it, but it's not the process that many people currently have in mind. So with that being said, what is Electoral College? I'll go ahead and give you the definition. The Electoral College is a body of electors established by the United States Constitution, which forms every four years for the sole purpose of electing the President and Vice President of the United States. The Electoral College consists of 538 electors and an absolute majority of at least 270 electoral votes is required to win the election. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the Constitution requires each state legislature to determine how the electors for that state are to be chosen, and it disqualifies any person holding a federal office, either elected or appointed, from being an elector. So. Basically, the Electoral College is the formal process in which the President and the Vice President of these United States are selected. So in November, you'll go out and vote for the President of your choice, right? And then when the election day is over, the votes will be tallied and the popular vote winner of your state will likely receive all of the votes from that state. Now, this doesn't mean that if you live in, for example, Illinois, and several million people vote for Hillary Clinton, and several hundred thousand people vote for Donald Trump, just an example, the numbers will be larger, but we'll go with Illinois, because that's where I live, right? Illinois has 20 electoral votes. That is the combination of our two senators, and our 18 congressional representatives. So when you're voting, right, you're not necessarily voting for the president. You're voting for a group of what's called electors who are chosen in the state's primary for both parties, where in the event that that person wins the popular vote of that state, those electors, the people who were selected to vote on behalf of said candidate, will meet in their state capital and cast a vote for the delegate they have pledged to cast to. And most states have a rule preventing electors from being what's called faithless, and they have the ability to enforce fines or removal if people don't vote the way that they're supposed to. And in most states, they have what's called a winner-take-all system, so that if you win Illinois by three votes, 3,000 or 300,000, you get all 20 electoral votes, right? Some places across the country are different. Some have it broken down by congressional district, but most places in the country have winner take all. And the idea behind this is simple, is that if the person who wins the state takes all the votes and the state has a lot of votes that are needed, right? it's going to incentivize candidates to go to that state to win those votes. 
Now, if you're one of the people who from 2016 got your first crash course with the Electoral College, right? And if you're a little bit older than that, your actual first crash course was in 2000, you'll understand that there have been a few times in American history, um, five in particular, where the popular vote, the winner of the popular vote did not win the Electoral College, right? And the general consensus among people who are critical of it is that the popular vote is the real, quote-unquote, will of the people, and the Electoral College is just some old Kafka-esque system in place that is designed to dilute the will of the people and designed to protect states that, let's face it, that we don't agree with, right? The idea behind the Electoral College is that when people are running for president, right, they're not running to win the most votes across the entire country, right? They're running to win the popular vote in a series of states that they believe will present them with the best chance for victory. So people can technically say that you could win the Electoral College by only being in a few states, which is true. If you were to just go for the largest states, you know, Florida, New York, Texas, California, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Michigan, etc., right? You could do that. You could just campaign in the states, the biggest states, and hope to get 270 votes that way. However, it's not as simple as that because trying to win both California and Texas up until recently has been very difficult, right? As the two states in particular had been dominated by one party or another. With California, used to be a Republican state, now consistently votes Democratic, and Texas, a Democratic state, now consistently votes Republican. Obviously, demographic changes are coming to certain states, i.e. Texas, but as of now, based on how most people consider the votes to go, Texas is still a red state. So you can't just go into the big states and just win those straight up and then hope to take the presidency. Most of the time, there are states where Democrats traditionally win and Republicans have traditionally won. Since polarization has increased, and if you look at um, the results since the year 2000, which you can if you go to the handy website 270towin.com, where you can learn all sorts about the Electoral College and how particular mashups work, what you can see is that since the the year 2000 in terms of elections the same few states have voted either democrat or republican with a couple switching off in between so if you look at the map that we have now right in terms of how that works right the democrats have won since 2000 consistently 195 electoral votes right and that includes the big boy that's california oregon Washington, Minnesota, right here in Illinois, and of course on the Upper East Coast, you've got New York, Vermont, Maryland, New Jersey, Delaware, Rhode Island, parts of Maine, and I believe that's all of them. 
So you've had the same states basically voting for the Democratic candidate since 2000. And for the Republicans, that 179, while it does include somewhat large states like Texas and Arizona, they have a lot of the smaller states as well. You have your Utahs, your Wyomings, your Montana, your Idaho, North Dakota, et cetera, et cetera, right? With again, Maine and New Hampshire having their vote split up among districts so that sometimes one part of the state will vote one way and sometimes the other part will vote another way. But for the most part, since all these states have a winner-take-all system, they're all going to be voting one direction. Now, that means that a few states have flipped between the two candidates over time. So these are the infamous swing states, as they're called, states where the popular vote for the president has switched between the two over time. So what we have in terms of these states are states that are, for the most part, white dominated, but growing in diversity, right? And then you have some places that are getting smaller as the population has shifted over time. So these states, which are the swing states as we call them, are Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida. So these states are all very critical for both presidential campaigns because these states will determine who becomes the next president of the United States, regardless of the popular vote. And I think part of the reason that people have a particular problem with it is that just the disparity in the 2000 election as opposed to others, right, is just so wide in that Hillary Clinton could win three million more votes but still lose. That just drives people insane, right? And I get it. Right. If we're thinking in the context of the presidential election is the same as every other election, then of course we're going to be upset that the idea that the person who didn't get the most votes didn't win. Right. That just doesn't make sense. So what is this cockamamie system we have in place and why does it pick somebody who doesn't win the most votes? And if you look back into the history, it's pretty simple. When this country was founded, right, there was tension between the larger and smaller states as to how if they were to become part of some sort of unified national federal government, how are they each going to have concerns addressed that one isn't going to dominate the other? In the previous government before the Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, federal government essentially had no power. And the states, large and small, were able to stop anything just by having simply one not agree. So the idea that that system could have lasted beyond where it did obviously meant that they had to change the system. Now, in order for this to work, the famous compromise that they came up with was that for the states to be represented in a way that they both felt fair is that the Congress of the United States, the House of Representatives and the Senate would have two different versions of representation, right? The House of Representatives, the lower house, as it's called, is made up based on the population of the state, right? So 
bigger states like California and Texas will have more representatives. Smaller states like Wyoming and Montana will have three. Basically, everybody gets three. Since everybody gets two senators and one rep, you get a minimum of three, right? And since we've capped the total number of representatives at the House and Senate at 535, right? Basically, every time the population changes, i.e. the census takes place, right? Those numbers will be distributed, and then based on who gains and who loses, congressional seats will either be added or be taken away. Now, the reason this was done, and for those of you who may not remember history books, is that the small states were concerned that the larger states would be able to basically take control of the government and make them do whatever they wanted, right? One common myth you'll hear is that this was designed specifically to protect slaveholding states, but that's not necessarily accurate, right? The bigger concern that you have to take here is not north versus south or slave versus free, it's size. It's the big states wanted power, the little states were concerned about not having power, right? And to give you an idea of the whole idea of this is an institution that is left over to protect slave states isn't necessarily accurate. If you look at the initial debate over the college, right, and the founded in general, is that you'll see that both New York and Virginia, the two largest states, one slave state and one free state, were both in support of the house version of government, right? But the smaller states, your Georgias and your Rhode Islands, also a different slave and free state, were smaller and wanted to have a form of equal representation for both of them. So, and we can talk about things like the three-fifths compromise and how that was done to help give them, you know, the slave states more representation than they maybe deserved because they were trying to, you know, have slaves that couldn't vote and also have them count for population purposes. But the Electoral College didn't necessarily defend slavery as it did basically become a product of states that had slavery in it, right? Both large and small, right? And this is going to become a key point of tension is because there's always been this case of the popular will or sometimes known as the mob versus the institutions and the smaller individuals who may not have the numbers to get what they want in a pure democracy, right? The whole reason the system is put in place was to give the states a buy and to say the big states will have one part of Congress where their numbers will be reflected and the other part, everybody gets an equal share, right? And over time, you know, we've made adaptations to this based on new information, as in if we have new states come in, as in if we do not like the original way of electing senators, which was to have the state legislature pick them, we change that with the 17th Amendment to allow us to vote directly for senators. So it's not without precedent that in American history, there have been parts where certain representatives are picked by other representatives, right? This is kind of how a republic works, is that the people 
will vote in particular representatives to represent them in government. And then in some cases, those same government officials will then pick other government officials. Now, if you think this leads to corruption, you're absolutely right. And that's exactly why we have the 17th Amendment in the first place was because legislators were taking bribes and people were getting picked that may not have been the best. So we've amended the Constitution, right? It's not an easy process. It's designed to be hard because they wanted something to last that wasn't so susceptible to change based on, you know, the current popular mood. You can say that it's too small in terms of the fact that there's only 435 representatives for the House, meaning that between California and, you know, Wyoming, that there's a disparity between the two, right? And some people will see that as a bad thing, right? You'll often see that the primary example that someone would give to change the system is that comparing California's electoral vote system to Wyoming's, right? One of them has 40 million people. One of them has way less, right? However, they both have two senators, right? And to many people, this is unfair because why would a state that's so big and has such influence have, quote unquote, less power per vote than Wyoming does? Which, when you think about it, is a ludicrous idea. The idea that Wyoming is going to be the one that people flock to and California is not. Again, this is no disrespect to Wyoming, right? Never been, like to go at some point. Great state of Wyoming. Holler at your boy, notorious essay. I'll do a podcast from there if you ask me to. But the idea that California is such has such an inferiority complex over this just it just it just makes me cringe because like you're California. You're the largest state in the nation, right? You're one of the largest economies in the world, nonetheless, in the United States alone, right? Yes. If you calculate the amount of people per vote in California with the senators versus Wyoming, you're probably going to see that the Wyoming vote is quote-unquote stronger because there's less of them. But again, I would like to reference the point that there are less people in Wyoming than in California, right? And the primary concern probably just has to do with the fact that Wyoming votes traditionally for the Republican president and California has voted for the Democratic president. And it's been on the losing side of that um, twice since 2000. So why are they so concerned about it, right? Why is there this whole sudden rush to get rid of the Electoral College, right? Well, it's not sudden, right? People have had their beefs with this throughout time. But the idea behind it is that the Electoral College is a representation of Congress. And here's where I think the framing of the issue always gets off the rails is that we tend to think of the presidency as one office and, of course, the House and Congress as another branch of government, right? As in they're separate. They're separate branches of government. One as Article One, one as Article Two. Right? And they're supposed to have checks and balances. If you look at the founding in the Constitution, and you can see that Article 1 is significantly longer than Article 2, right? This is because the founders were, in fact, skeptical of centralized authority, just as they were skeptical of mob rule. 
So what they wanted to do is build a system where there was a series of balances and checks, if you will, right? That not only reflected the government, but the people themselves, right? The idea that pure majoritarianism is always the correct path is a one-way ticket to disaster, right? And unfortunately, if a majority, quote-unquote, feels as if they're not being heard and the system is against them, all of a sudden the system looks like it's the problem and not them, right? Because the idea behind this system that we have in America is that Individuals and minority groups, whether they're political parties or people of color, are supposed to have something that gives them agency in the system, right? So that everything isn't just subject to a 50% plus one vote, right? The idea of your rights being up for a vote or your property being up for a vote or the idea of you getting to participate in the process being up to a simple majority vote because people are tribal. People respond with bad information, and people, as we've seen, will try to disenfranchise people that they think are threats to their power structure. So if we have a system in place that guarantees individual rights and diffuses power not just into a majority overall, but to a series of states that, in their own rights, have the absolute right to determine how their elections are run and how their electors are appointed, right? This system wasn't designed to have a federal government elected that is equal to how we select Congress, right? This is done in the same way that Congress passes a bill. If you're confused by that, let me go ahead and give you some numbers here, and I promise you it'll make sense, right? As I mentioned before, right? There are 538 electoral votes. And to win, you need to win 270 of them. Now in Congress, right, if you were to pass a bill with the bare minimum majority in the House and Senate combined, that would be a minimum of 269 votes. And you think to yourself, well, those look those sound like the same numbers, and that's intentional, right? The founders wanted us to elect a president essentially the same way that Congress passes a law, right? Is that states would have their own elections, they would then pick their electors, and whoever won a majority of those electors would then pick the president, right? When we look at Congress, right, we don't often assume when bills are passed that we look at the voting totals between those who voted for a bill and voted against the bill and say if the votes of the minority in terms of their total population districts outweigh the votes of the majority it is an illegitimate bill no because that's not how the system is set up right we all have a certain number of people to elect and right and we send them to washington and then they have to work together with the people of their party and the people of the opposing party to pass legislation that they think is important Right, And in these entirely partisan times, that usually means that instead of trying to win over votes, most of the time they're just trying to win enough votes in the respective House and Senate to pass with the bare majority if required. 
Not everybody is a fan of this system, obviously, but this is the whole point is that they a system was built here that is designed to force parties to work together who would otherwise be in conflict, right? Because if the rules say that no one particular side or agency is going to have power either unlimitedly or perpetually, right? The idea is that over time, people of different views will be forced to come together and either compromise or face the consequences of the voters. And sure, you're probably thinking to yourself, Steve, this is all just a bunch of nonsense, right? This is all just a bunch of old white men who wrote this thing in so that people couldn't vote, right? And that they wouldn't be able to pick the president that they wanted, that a bunch of insiders would be able to pick it. But again, as I stressed earlier, right, in the modern day, right, these electors only exist between election day and inauguration day for the purposes of voting for the person that they pledged to vote for, which is usually the person of the party who won that state. And the way I like to explain it to people who think that this doesn't make sense is that people tend to think of the election as like the Super Bowl, right? Where the Super Bowl is two teams and whoever wins scores the most points. Pretty simple. If you get 20 points, the team gets 21 points, you win. That's it. It's over. Right? But the presidential election is not so much like football as it is more like baseball in that usually there's multiple games played and the person who or the team who wins will usually win best out of seven or, you know, in the COVID era, best out of three. We'll go with best out of seven just because it, it serves my purpose better. So imagine it's the World Series and we have Team Red versus Team Blue, right? Can't get any better than that. We'll say for the first three games, Team Blue just crushes Team Red, just absolutely wrecks them, right? We'll say they score 10 runs per game in the first three games, right? So Team Blue, and for those of you who aren't aware of what the World Series is, it's the uh, final series in baseball, and I can't believe I have to explain that to anybody, but basically seven games, whoever wins four games first wins, right? So in this hypothetical scenario, Team Blue has won the first three games by blowing out Team Red, right? Scoring 10 runs per game, just really making it bad. And in case you're wondering, what did Team Red get? We'll go with zero, just because, you know, it'll make more sense later on. So they've outscored 10 to zero, They've gotten 30 runs on them unanswered, right? We'll say Team Red starts to figure out exactly how to start playing baseball, right? They know they can't win necessarily by outscoring them. What if they could stop them from scoring and just just get ahead just enough, right? And we'll say their defense becomes so good that they stop them from scoring altogether. But luckily for Team Red, they're able to just get one run in game four 
and at the end it was 1-0, so Team Red wins. And in Game 5, the same thing happens. Team Red has great defense, gets one run, all the way to the end, they win Game 2. What happens if it happens again? Game 3, right? They've won 1-0. Team Blues fans are like, what the hell is this, right? You guys scored 30 unanswered runs in the first three games, and now there's only now you're losing by one run each time? What is happening? And then Game 4 happens, and then bam, same thing. Team Red, great defense, still gets one run. Team Blue loses. People lose their minds, right? The Blue fans are upset because how is this possible? How could they not score one run or two runs in the last four games, right? They scored 10 runs in three games, right? If you did the math on that one, Team Blue scored 30 runs during the during this final, but Team Red only did four, right? If you were to look at those numbers and say which of these teams won, right, without looking at the games, of course you would say Team Blue won because they scored 30 runs, right? Split it over how many games, there's no way that would work, right? But that's not how it works, right? We don't measure the World Series in terms of who scores the most runs. It's who wins the most games. So if Team Red's strategy was to basically contain Team Blue from ever scoring and then just basically score one run per game, not probably the best strategy in my mind, but in this hypothetical scenario, it worked out for them because they did it four times in a row and they won the World Series, right? You wouldn't go and say that Team Blue deserves to win because they scored way more runs. And the only reason that they didn't win is because of this unfair system where they have to win four games out of seven, right? And we could just count the number of runs that are there in the first place. Nobody's going to do that, right? Nobody's going to count the total number of runs over the course of the games and say, that's how we pick the winner in this game, right? That's not how you do it, right? So we think of the presidency not as the Super Bowl, but more as a World Series, right? Where the idea is that in every state is a different game, and unfortunately these games are worth different numbers of points, which kind of, which I'll admit, kind of inhibits the, inhibits the amount. But, you know, the principle is still there, is that you can't just get all the votes in one place and win. You have to win in different places in different times. Right. That's the thing is that we tend to think of the federal presidential election as one big election, but it's not. It's 50 separate elections, right? All happening at the same time, right? All ending on the same day, right? So when you put it that way, when you try to disperse the power over states, i.e. games, instead of just one big thing, it makes more sense, right? And I feel like if we told people that, look, you can vote a certain way, right? But just know that you are voting in the popular vote of your state because we live in a federalist system and the system we picked the president on is based on that federalist system. People would be a lot more understanding of it than just basically being told that the popular vote should be the winner. And if the electoral college happens to coincide with it, then it's great. But if it doesn't, the Electoral College is the problem that needs to change, right? Because if the Electoral College is the problem, you should have a problem every single time somebody wins, regardless of the popular vote, right? When it's in sync, nobody cares. 
but when it's not in sync, all of a sudden we're starting to question whether or not the system is truly fair at all, right? And there are people who want to change this system. And quick plug here: um, if you want to learn a bit more about it in a what I would say is a very of, of the documentaries there are available on the Electoral College, this is probably the best one. It's called Safeguard, an Electoral College Story. It is a project of the group called Save Our States, which is one of the groups that's actively out there trying to promote information about the Electoral College and basically get people to realize why it's important, right? And there are books about it here. Um, in particular, I would recommend if I could find it on my bookshelf here. Yes, The Indispensable Electoral College by Tara Ross, who Tara Ross herself has a ton of work on the Electoral College, and you can learn quite a bit, right? The ingeniousness of this system is that it forces people to not just pander to places where all the people are, right? And you may think to yourself, how is that fair, right? The places of where the people are should be where the power should come from. But again, right, this is the same exact debate the founders had, and they figured out that, yes, partially, the states with the most population will likely have the largest say, right? And if they all vote consecutively together in the same blocks, they have that power. As I mentioned earlier, since 2000, Democrats have won more states consistently than Republicans have, right? So if they were to win the swing states more often, then they would consistently have the popular vote tied to the electoral vote. And we wouldn't have a question about it, right? Now, the fact that they're not tied together is what really drives some people nuts, right? Some people who really just feel that the system is totally outdated and needs to be changed. And you know what? If you feel that way, by all means, explain, talk about it, explain how you want to change that. Because the only way to do that is to have a constitutional amendment, right? That has to change multiple factors in terms of how states pick their electors and how they can enforce who can vote and how electors are chosen or to remove the elector system in general, right? But this is what states have been doing, and it seems to have worked out pretty well, right? And I will say that, yes, every time that the popular vote and the electoral vote didn't meet, usually that presidency had enough of its own issues to, you know, have the people constantly be on their backs. But I will remind you that although George Bush lost the popular vote in 2000, he won it again in 2004. So... The people had the chance to correct their mistake, quote-unquote, but they went with the guy who they picked the first time, right? And Obama won the Electoral College and nobody cared because he just had such overwhelming numbers that that's what mattered. Now, when it comes to 2016, here's where I think the people who have been opposed to the college found their worst-case scenario and think that this is the opportune moment to get rid of it because they saw Donald Trump... um, who most people would consider to be a detestable human being, beat Hillary Clinton, who some people would consider to be a detestable human being, in the Electoral College, but lose by not like 500 votes or a 1,000 votes. 
three million. Three million more people voted for Hillary Clinton, right? And it just seems like most of the time that we've had a divergence, it wasn't that large. But this one in particular is a very large divergence where people felt they felt robbed. They felt that Donald Trump didn't actually win the presidency, right? That this is all just some technicality, so he's not really president for some reason. Even though that's not how it works, and that's never how it worked, right? It's always the people who are on the losing side of this who think the system is a problem, right? If it was Democrats winning the Electoral College and Republicans losing the popular vote, you know the systems would be changed, right? Republicans would be calling for this national popular vote, and Democrats would be championing the founding of the the wisdom of the founders. For their hilarious and important insight into the future. As a matter of fact, Hillary Clinton's whole strategy in 2016 was the blue wall. If we forget that such a thing existed, right? That even if Donald Trump did win the popular vote somehow, that Hillary would for sure grab the electoral college, right? And if that had happened, you can guarantee that there would be massive. Massive public praise for the Electoral College, right? And the Republican Party would gladly abandon it if that was the case. But the world we live in now is the opposite, where the Democratic Party and their states have been on the losing end of this. So since 2000, there's been this somewhat uh, insidious but well-funded effort to change the way that states. Elect their electors, right? It's called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, right? Which is a private group that is basically trying to get states to change their laws so that they will have their electors vote for the person who wins the national popular vote, right? Not their state vote, right? So the trick here is that they're trying to pull is that basically we're going to get as many states as we can up until we reach 270 to agree, right? And then once we've done that, we've created a workaround on the system where the states are all choosing to have their electors go to the person who wins the most votes nationally, right? Despite the fact that the current system has it where. The person who wins the most votes in that state gets their electors, right? Now, here's the rub with this: is that if you go to their website and you listen to their articles, and unfortunately, even you hear it in things like Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, all they talk about is, "Hey, this system is dumb, but we've created this easy workaround where all we have to do is just get enough states to sign off on it." And then, as long as the states in the compact all agree to do it, then the other states won't really—we don't have to have to do anything about it because we'll have the votes, so we'll win. And we've corrected the issue of having the popular vote and the electoral vote、um, be in opposite directions. So here's the thing: is that this is being sold as something that's easy. Super constitutional and the right thing to do, but it's not. It's not the right thing to do. It's not constitutional. And to be clear, this is a vote because the understanding here is that 
democratic states have all passed it and if they can just get enough other states to pass it right if they can jack up the popular vote they can get these states to have their electors go their way right this is the very thing that the system was designed to prevent in the first place where big states are using their power and influence to make smaller states agree to their political decisions at the federal level right this is not what the founders wanted right we don't have states bully each other over their presidential votes they're separate states they're sovereign entities who are allowed to choose how they decide to have their electors cast right hell they don't want the electors they could probably split that up among their congressional districts right if if every state has some sort of bipartisan you know delegation from the entire state then why won't you just do it that way and you know what that's a conversation worth having the winner take all system is definitely something that people can criticize and if you wanted to change it so that you know every state wanted to do it that way then great that would work but unfortunately there's no incentive for the state to do that because if they split up their votes they're not going to get the attention right as opposed to winner take all where they can bank on one candidate either wanting them consistently or knowing that if they're on the fence enough that they will get the attention of both campaigns right they will get the influence and the power and the money and their people will be courted to later on right and you can say that's a problem right but would it be any different if this national popular vote compact was in place no right the assumption here is that everything will stay the same except the laws will guarantee it to vote one way and the, the npv way is the way of the democratic party and i'm sorry if that sounds like i'm being partisan you know there are republicans who are probably in favor of this uh, not a lot but they're aware of that their political power is in part due to this unique system right and they focused on this system right this is the system that they've used and mastered to get what they want and yes you can say that over the last few years the republican presidency only bush in 04 has won the popular vote right and if you want to take that as the majority of the country doesn't support the elected leader you can if you want to why you would frame it that way when it's not even the way how we actually elect people or pass laws right is just so you know it's hypocritical right they talk about wanting to protect the rights of the states but things like this don't right the system we have now protects states because it allows them to choose where their electors go and how they vote. And as of now, they've all decided that the popular vote winner in their states gets all their electors, right? Can you imagine a world where again, just to give you an example, George W. Bush, the Republican conservative, wins the presidential election and the popular vote? And those same states that have agreed to that will then cast their votes for the president even if their people didn't vote for that president by a substantial margin how is that better how is betting that states 
are going to, you know, win all the time or be in the winning party, which there's no guarantee that they will, right? How will that make them feel like they have a say in the federal government? If anything, it makes it sound like they don't have a say. Is that if California decides to vote one way, right? There's enough people in the state of California to outweigh the populations of over half the country, right? And California's answer to this is probably sucks to suck, right? We have the people, we have the votes. That's your problem, right? So if a minor, if a if the Senate, right, the the Senate that we have now is made up of Republicans. And the population of those states is far less than the population of the states in the minority. So again, you're California, you're Illinois, you're New York, right? The popular states have mostly Republican, mostly Democrats, and then the less popular states have mostly Republicans. But there's enough of them at two apiece to help take the majority in the Senate, which again, it's its own branch with its own rules and its own designations for how things work, right? And if you haven't gotten the, the kind of undertone here is that the system is designed for every single part of the system to have some sort of agency in how they conduct their business that all kind of carries on into a larger level, right? Because again, if there is agency in the different levels of federalism, whether it's the individual, the local, the state, up to the federal government, right? If people feel like they have some sort of agency in the process, they're more willing to trust the process and be involved with it than if to say, for example, right? Like, if I'm voting for the president and I'm one of 63 million people who votes one way, but 65 million people vote another way, right? I'm just one, one lonely person in the giant scheme of votes to get, right? But if I'm undecided in a state where there's a couple million people, right, and the electorate is split 50-50, and the rest of the country is also split 50-50, and the way that the popular vote in this state goes will determine who becomes the president, right, all of a sudden my vote is super important, right? Does that mean that my vote counts more than when it does in California or New York? No. It's still one vote, right? And those states have more congressional representatives than mine do because they have bigger populations. That seems pretty fair, right? And you know what? You can have senators from two different parties be in your state. Illinois had at one point. Not anymore and probably not in the foreseeable future, but you can. States don't have to be a universal block. They're able to have agency because they know that their vote actually means something, right? You can say to yourself, that's weak because I'm in a state that isn't competitive and I only get one side of the story and I feel like I should have more say. Well, you can if you want to, right? Like if your state is consistently going one direction, then, you know, the people of your state have spoken, right? 
but other people will think differently than you and other states may have different leanings right and we all bought into the same system where we were all told that at the very least you're going to have some form of equal representation right so that the pure majority in this country will not have the final say over everything because as we mentioned before checks beget balances beget checks beget balances right we elect the house every two years so it stays fresh we elect the third of the senate every six years so that it kind of has more institutional memory we elect one president every four years and now there's a term limit on it so the most you can do is twice right we don't have it set up so that it becomes super easy for a small majority of people to just take power I know what you're thinking to yourself, this guy is so unself-aware. The Republican Party is a minority who is attempting to take power, right? And yes, under the rules of the system, we have a quote-unquote minority party, as in the total number of people in the country who voted for them as opposed to the others, right, was less. But in that system, those people won races where it mattered far more than other places, right? They decided this particular branch of government, their particular party had a chance to win it, and they did. And that's what happens. It's called divided government, right? It is something that people consistently say they want up until they have it, and then when there's problems because it's divided government, they complain about why can't they just get along. The irony of human nature in voting. This is how the system works, is that it's designed so that not everybody can just basically go in and take power forever, right? And it's hard to think that 10 years ago, when Obama was inaugurated and the Democrats controlled the House and the Senate just in massive numbers and was was able to pass a ton of legislation that was super important and still in effect today, they felt stymied by the minority in the Republican Party. But then the Republicans won the next election and they held on to power in the House up until 2018, right? You know, they had their chance. They took advantage of it. And since then, what's happened? The Democratic Party has adapted. They've grown. They've moved away from urban enclaves into the suburbs, right? States that were red are now purple and states that are purple are now blue. And states that are blue are never going to be red again, probably, if they don't get their act together. So the demographics are on their side. What's the problem here, right? Why don't we just pass this national popular vote compact? Why don't we just go with the majority? Because eventually they're going to get there. And that's the trick, is that eventually, eventually the population may consistently turn out to always have the popular vote match the electoral vote, right? This is the ideal system people want. And the thing with the system that people want is that they basically will say, and by they, I'll just be clear, I'll probably mean Democrats on the left because 
they're the ones pushing this particular compact, this particular plan to solve it, is that there is no scenario in which the people's popular vote should ever be circumvented, right? At the end of the day, it is the majority who should decide what happens at every level of government. And not a majority of people who vote for government to go into government and then pick something else. No, the majority of people should have a say over their government entirely so that their representatives and their people do not have agency of their own so that they will just merely defend what the district wants, right? Or what the state wants. If you're a representative, that's obviously in your interest to do that, right? You get elected to help your district, right? And you should do what your district wants. But does that mean that you necessarily have to believe a majority of what the district wants? What if you're not elected by the majority of your district? Right? What if thousands of people don't like how you act, but the people who do come out and vote? consistently and they work for you and they work on your behalf and they make sure that you have the numbers when your time's up because you do what's best for them and in their minds for the district right if you think about it the vast majority of people don't actually vote for their representatives right voting is not mandatory in this country right so you have a choice not to and hell most of the time people don't sure in the presidential election you may have turnout as high as 60 percent nationally right but go down the list and i'm sure it just gets lower and lower you can tell go to the midterm election go to your local election go to municipal elections go to special elections Really just parse yourself down and see how often people vote consistently. Do they vote every time that there is an election? Some people do. The politically active do. But based on the overall eligible voting population, most don't. For many, they don't care. Or they don't know. Or it's irrelevant, right? You know... It's one thing if it's a special election to fill a congressional seat, which can represent 700,000 people. But even then, right, it's essentially the party activists on both sides trying to push their candidate over the edge. Well, without the majority of the district voting, you know, local elections might have turnout rates of anywhere between 9 and 14 percent, right? Yes. 9% of the eligible population can determine who controls layers of government that have the most effect over your lives, right? It amazes me that this seems to be the issue they focus on is that we have to somehow try to make the presidency ours when it's just one office of many. And it's an important office, clearly, right? But it seems as if we continually push to where our vote matters less as more important as opposed to where it matters more which is at the local level 
because as the pool of voters of eligible voters decreases, not because of ineligibility, just want to make that clear, just because the amount of voters in a township is going to be less than the amount of voters in a congressional district or a state. So there are physically less people present to vote. These are the elections that people should focus on. I think this is what the founders wanted. I think they wanted your local government to be your primary concern and that the local government and people more interested in government will obviously work their way towards it. But for the person who doesn't deal with this every day, whose primary civic activity is probably voting once every two to four years, they don't volunteer on campaigns. They don't make phone calls. They don't work for candidates, right? They're the ones at home who probably split their tickets and go back and forth, right? They're the people who you constantly leave literature for at their door because they don't want to answer or talk to you, right? Right? The thing about America and the thing about the Electoral College and all of this is that every person has a choice in whether or not they want to be involved, right? It is wrong to tell people who want to be involved, who should be legally allowed to be involved, to be denied unfairly and unjustly. I'm talking to you, Republican Party guys, my people, like, I understand that you're concerned about voting fraud and whatnot. I get that, like, the integrity of the process, but, like, you guys are really coming off as just trying to make it as hard as possible for people to vote, right? And maybe because they're just used to people who constantly vote, who go through the process every time, that when more people want to vote, they think that these rules are stupid and that they just try to enforce them anyway, even when the circumstances do not warrant it, i.e. pandemic. Like, this is why people don't want the electoral college, because they see you guys trying to make it as hard as possible for people that you think should vote not be able to vote so that you'll be able to keep this system in place for yourself, right? Even though it's in your interest to make sure everybody can vote because most of the time people don't vote, right? This is what makes voting so powerful is that if everybody was forced to do it, right, it wouldn't really matter how much you cared about a candidate because if everyone's forced to vote, it's just going to be a popularity contest, right? But in a world where people get to go out of their own way to vote, right? You drive by a polling place, there's no one stopping you. There's no one pointing a gun at you and saying you have to go vote, which is wrong, right? You cannot vote. You cannot care at all. And you can still live your life in this country. And you could still be active, right? You can talk about issues. You could complain about anything as a result of you being a taxpayer, right? But if you don't vote, that's really the only place where you have the most power to make change, right? And if everybody who voted in 2008 voted every election, every year, every time, right? This country would look very different from what it does now in terms of its political alignment, right? If 2008 was standard every single year, right, then the Democratic Party would be in charge everywhere. And eventually the Republican Party would have to start catering to more voters because they weren't getting enough, right? 
But the problem is that over time, people just don't care. They don't feel their vote matters, right? And it's hard enough to get people to be concerned unless the world is on fire, which it is, right? The last cycle and this cycle are going to have extreme amounts of voting, not because people are optimistic about the future, but because they are scared, because they are worried, and because the Trump administration and the GOP is very much concerned with the appearance of having power than having any real principles to go with it. And guys, I get it. We're the rules, guys. Them's the rules. That's why I'm devoting half an hour to an hour of my life to protecting the Electoral College, which wins me no friends, right? Most of the time. But I feel it's important because it's supposed to divide power up between us, right? It's supposed to give us agency in our state, in our local communities. And the fact of the matter is, is that we have very little say over what the president does, right? We as individuals and as a collective mass, unless there's enough of us in the right spots across the country to form that electoral majority, if it's divided in a way we're sure, a lot of people don't, but it's not going to stop me from getting elected, that's what they're going to respond to. People will respond to actual electoral incentives. But you have to play by the rules, right? This National Voter Compact, if it ever does go into effect, which I very much doubt it will, it will immediately be challenged in court and thrown out because it's a contract that a state cannot get out of if they don't want to, right? And will force them to go against their constitutional prerogatives. And anybody who's anybody will sue in one of these states and it will be found unconstitutional. And if you think I'm wrong, don't think this court situation with Trump is just a coincidence, right? The Republican Party, for all of its faults, knows how important this is and knows that the division of power for their purposes now has resulted in them gaining more of it. But it's not a forever thing, right? And much the same way John Adams packed the court with Federalist judges who would help ensure the Constitution in their mind maintain its legal principles, many of these conservative justices on the court now will definitely rule against these measures, right? And they will say, there is a process. You cannot go around it. You must make the hard choices. You must make people engage, right? As long as we're not getting people engaged in the process, it will always feel illegitimate, right? And you can say, it doesn't matter. I don't care. I have very little say in the process, but you'd be surprised, right? Because if that attitude is multiplied over and over and over again, a district of 700,000 people, it does not take a lot to influence it. And let me give you an example from my personal life, right? I was working on a campaign in 2018, had to finish it up there, with my candidate, right? And mind you that, again, this congressional district has 700,000 residents in it. Now, you could break that down by adults and adults who are registered to vote and adults who actually vote, right, in terms of how it matters. But if you think about it this way, right, in order to get on the ballot here, in order to be in a position to be nominated to represent 700,000 people, right, 
it only takes a couple hundred people to get that process going. And it takes even less to remove competition. And I'll tell you why. Because there were two candidates who filed for it, and only one of them made it to the ballot. You know why? Because the other candidate didn't follow the rules. The other candidate had bad signatures on their ballot. They did not have enough legal requirements, signatures, to get on the ballot. And they were kicked off. Right? And all it took was one person filing a complaint after reviewing the evidence to get that person removed so that in a primary for tens of thousands of people, right, that they would only have one option. They would only have one person to pick from, right? And right there you have the whole point of the fact that one person or a small group of people can make a huge difference. And the smaller it gets, the more power you have, right? But in order to, but once you have that kind of power, once you are involved in the political game about who gets on the ballot, you can pick who gets in the local offices. You can get people who have access to people who have higher offices. And power begets power, right? Your individual vote is most powerful at the local level. And that is your chance to actually gain more agency, right? And it's hard work and you have to go out of your way to do it. And it's very time consuming and it's expensive as hell, right? But if it's something you believe in and it's something that you understand how important this is for your community and for society and for yourself, if you believe in this system to help people, and if you believe that, yes, eventually the people that I agree with may lose power one day, but I trust the system so that when those who disagree with me come into the power, I will still have agency. I will still have a right to express my views. And I will know that the system should encourage the majority to work with me and listen to me than to steamroll me, right? Because if they do, they can steamroll me. If there's a system where the minority can come back into power, they can steamroll the majority. And that process just begets more problems, right? If we force ourselves to work together and to understand that while I am one person and one vote, I am still important. I still have agency in this process and I will not be drowned out by the vast majority who don't care or the majority who disagree with me, right? It gives me hope to be part of the system and it should give you hope too. Now, you're probably asking, how does that relate to the Electoral College, right? It's because this system divides power that we are able to have these kind of conversations, right? It is to say that we have a republic where we pick people to represent us in rules, and we know there are different levels of rules, and we don't just throw that away because we don't like the results. And I'll give you one final analogy that probably I think sums it up best. And it's another baseball analogy, just because it's easy. Home run derby, right? And for me, for All-Star break, this is the actual important part of All-Star break. Because I don't care about the All-Star game. Nobody should care about the All-Star game. But home run derby is basically the best hitters go up and they try to hit as many home runs as possible. Until they strike out, right? Now ask yourself, if someone's able to hit 30 home runs in round one, but can't hit a single one in round two, 
and one person hits five runs in the first round and two runs in the second round, you wouldn't say the person who hit 30, right, did better or deserved to advance, right? They exercised all of their runs at one time, right? And they weren't able to compete in the next level of power, in the next position, right? Like, we have a process and we have a follow-through because it works, right? We don't say, hey, I understand you didn't hit any, but you hit 30 the first time and this other guy's only hit seven, so total. So we're just going to go ahead and move you to the front, right? Nobody would agree that that's fair and nobody would believe in the system if that's what they did, right? But that's what the Electoral College protects us from and that's what the popular vote is trying to do. It's trying to get people who win a bunch of votes in the first round but can't win enough in the next round to actually win to basically say, hey, you don't have to try that hard. You just have to do it the first round and we'll just put it. If that's the case, then create a system where the home run derby is not in fact you know, a series of competitions between players who are trying to hit a certain amount of runs, right? Just have everybody hit as many runs as possible and then Whoever hits the most wins, right? But what's the point in that, right? The point of the derby is that over time, are you still able to hit home runs, right? And the point of our system is over more than a few states, are you able to build electoral coalitions? And if you're able to do that, you maintain the wheels of power. And sometimes that means 65 million people pick the president. And sometimes it means 63 million people pick the president, okay? And you know what? If everybody in every district, everywhere voted in every election, based on the numbers that are there, probably liberal Democrats would be in control of everything. But they don't, because most of the time they don't care, because a lot of their voter base is 18 to 19 years old and honestly could give zero interest about their local elections. But other people do, right? And say what you will about the president, the current president, who is, again, openly hopefully recovering from COVID-19, right? That the one thing he commands, which is not respect or admiration or knowledge, is attention. Where he goes, eyeballs and ears and cameras follow, right? It has been his whole plan this whole time. Look at me. I'm Donald Trump. Look how successful I am. Look how cool I am. Look how attractive my wife is. Look at me, right? And he obviously wanted this so bad, he wanted to be in the one position on earth where every eye would be on him at all times, right? And you know what? Since he's been president, the amount of interest in voting has grown massively. The groups that were very lulled during the Obama years all of a sudden they're raising money like it's no tomorrow, right? Thousands of voters who disappeared after 2009 just re-emerged out of nowhere, angry that this could happen, right? Donald Trump has brought attention to the fact that it doesn't take a lot for a certain segment of the population to take control of government, right? And if you were just complacent that the people you agree with would always be in charge, and you just decided it didn't matter anymore? Now you know that you have to pay attention every single time 
to every single election. And it's exhausting, and you have to go out of your way for it. And if you don't like it, it's probably not fun. But it is too important to be left to those who know how to control and wield power all the time, right? You as a citizen, you have to have enough agency in yourself and your fellow citizens to know that, yes, the people who are interested in this and the local parties may have the majority of the say, but if we all get together and decide otherwise, we should be able to do that, right? It won't happen all the time. It doesn't happen every election, but it does happen and it can matter, right? It is your choice to be part of this. It's your choice to engage with the citizenry, right? And people will say the system we have now doesn't do that. But ask yourself, hasn't it? Has not the elections of 2010 and 14 and 16 not seen a change in the electorate, right? For people like me who knew who the press secretary was in the Obama years and most people didn't know, now it's everywhere. It's on SNL. It's in memes. It's in constant talking points. It's in the youth who are super upset with what is happening, right? And maybe they now realize that, holy crap, guys, that if we don't pay attention, some people who do not understand the world that we live in now or lit or live in a way we believe is outdated, right? We'll have the wheels of power at their disposal. And it can not help and it can hurt, particularly if people that you think are don't understand what the problems are make the problems worse or ignore them, right? But it requires you to be involved. It requires agency. And in order for us to have agency, we need to have some form of power. And the best way to have power is to divide power. And the best way to divide power is to have legal mechanisms that allow us to go through different channels to have different ways of committing power. Because I cannot, not every person can listen to every issue all the time, but I can listen to some, but I can pick somebody who can. I can pick someone I believe is competent and trustworthy and will do what's best for me and my family in the realm of government that I don't want to be involved in because politics is, you know, it can be gross and messy and personal and again, expensive. And some people will. Some people will go through that because they believe they can help. Some will do it for self-promotion. Some will do it because they can. Some will do it for their own personal gain, frankly. But some will do it because they know it's the right thing to do. And they believe they can help their community and that their community supports them. Right? And it's hard to think that the Electoral College affects that. But as long as we have divided power in this country, we'll always have the ability for people to not have to be involved because they don't want to be. But when they see what happens when they don't get involved, they can be. And the same system that allowed those who consistently vote to make the rules will allow those who decide to show up once or twice more often to have their say too. It all leads back to the fact that power in this country is split between the states, the federal government, the federal government is split between the branches, right? And we, the people, have the ability to challenge our local, state, and federal governments, and they have the ability to challenge each other. And yeah, that may lead to conflict, 
and yeah, it can lead to hard feelings, but it's going to force us to interact. It's going to force us to come to an understanding. In the grand scheme of things, it will force us to adapt to people that we don't necessarily agree with because that's how we evolve as people, right? Some people we're going to be on board with 100 to 90% of the time. Sometimes it's going to be 70. Sometimes it's going to be 50. Sometimes it'll be zero, right? And eventually we're going to have to come to some sort of equilibrium where we figure out a way where the majority can have what they want and the individual is protected from having things taken away from them. That is the beauty of America. That is the power of the Electoral College in that it divests authority from a strict majoritarian point of view to the individuals who choose to be involved. Split up over space and time and different political persuasions. So that's all. There's a lot more you can research on the topic. Um, Again, I would go ahead and check out the uh, Save Our States page and check out that documentary, uh, Safeguard and Electoral College Story. You know, if you change your mindset about the college from it being a, you know, an implementation against the popular vote to a way that the system is designed to work as a republic, right? If you think about it that, you know, just because it doesn't always correlate doesn't mean it's not legitimate and that it's very easy for the two to correlate. It can be done, but it just has to go through the hard process of doing it, right? It's the idea that being forced to be engaged in the process so that we can better it for ourselves now and for future generations is what I think is so important about this, right? Because if you take that away, right, you give people less reason to vote because they don't believe their vote matters. If you think it doesn't matter now, it'll matter way less without the Electoral College. That's why it's so unique. So again, thank you to everybody. Um, apparently this podcast is available on multiple platforms as you keep being, being informed. So Spotify, Breaker, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts, I think Apple Podcasts, I don't know. Any place where you can get a podcast, right? You can get this. So please do. I hope everybody enjoyed it. If you find it interesting, great. If you don't and you want me to talk about something else, like I'm interested. I like to research things I don't know a lot about and talk about them if that's something you're interested. Or if you want a specific political question answered in a fair and honest way. As someone who is prone to play devil's advocate, right? I will do my best to go over any topic you want as fairly as I can and obviously have my own personal opinion. Because if I'm just a partisan hack, there's going to be no point because I'm not getting paid for this. So thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful night. Stay safe. And remember, make sure to vote. (laughs) 